Foundering's podcast back with my friend, Keenan Bishop. So I wish this was on video because Keenan has his signature look, his red glasses. And I had to tell you, every time I hear Keenan talk, it's like listening to a prophet. Do not say that lightly. Everything he says comes from this deep place of social justice and generosity. And when you hear a story about how much his mom and his grandma uh, raised him in Ohio, particularly in the black church, you'll see why. And just like in the words of Rakim, Keen is the deepest on the Mike since Adidas fam. Got a lot of good stuff to say. And last but not least, leveragepublishinggroup.com. I'm looking to ghostwrite and publish authors who want to publicize their voice in the world. First time book. Peace. Check us out. What is good, Ronda Rings fam? We got my brother from another mother, Keenan Bishop, on the mic. Woo woo. Keenan, what's going on, fam? Man, I'm excited to be in the house with you, man. It's been a good day, good week, good year so far. Blessed to hear that, man. You know, one of these days, man, I just need to do this on video so we can show like the just amazing swag we have on, man, because you have your signature red glasses on. I just want people to see that because that is such a, it's a distinct part of your styles, those those beautiful red glasses, man. You know, the the introvert advantage, man, having having something to, to spark a conversation. I am, uh, I, I'm excited that I can see because I, I, I had a daughter who was like, hey daddy, I think you're pulling that phone uh, too far from your face. <laughs> a few years ago, I was like, well, well, maybe I need some help. And then uh, the rig last wow. arrived. Oh, holy goodness gracious. Well, Keenan, we always start every one of these episodes with what is your story? Thanks for the question. I am, I'm an Ohio boy. I'm trying to make my grandmother proud. Uh, God bless her soul. When she looks down, I'm hoping that she's smiling. And my story is connected to hers. She was, she was 15 when her hair turned silver. So you got to picture this beautiful chocolate woman with a silver afro like her entire life. And she was involved in a church where the Reverend was uh, Dr. Otis Moss, who was close friends with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So Dr. King uh, would come to the church and my grandmother raised my mother and raised us to believe that like your faith and your feet had to match. And so she was involved in uh, social justice because of what she believed. My mother, when she was young, was involved in social justice because of what my grandmother believed. And that translated down to us. I remember my mom telling me that she was in the, the kids sit in because the local department store didn't have black Santa Clauses. And that was organized through uh, the church. When we were growing up, it was a time where in Cincinnati, the Klan would have a rally that was protected by the police officers. And that was every year on Fountain Square. And so we're like in the midst of learning about right, wrong and, and justice. And we couldn't sit in church on Sunday and not be involved in, in the movement. As an adult, that translated into being intentional about the jobs that I chose. And I was able to be uh, a teacher. I lived in the same neighborhood about, you know, six blocks away from the school that, uh, that I taught. It was considered an urban school. And that was years ago. We're still living in the same neighborhood. So even though, you know, I went from teacher to administrator to an executive director overseeing and, and, 
and building up administrators and since then have done lots of great work inside and outside of districts. And I'm doing consulting now. We didn't feel a need to move out and be away from the community. And so at every level has been about making sure that the things that we think about, speak about, preach about on Sundays are walked out. So I tried to to do that as a school leader, tried to do that as a leader of leaders, and just tried to, to make it so that any opportunity I have to work with folks, it's a connection to my belief system. And that belief system overflows in how we treat people, how we model what it looks, feels, and sounds like to be sacrificial for the overall good of um I think society. So justice is in our bones. And my story is that whatever it manifests in, if it's music, if it's uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, if it's uh, preaching, that you're going to get a taste of what I believe because of the way I behave. Man, that's powerful stuff, Keenan. I want to go back to something that you said earlier around both your, your grandmother, your mom, right? This connection between the Black church, civil rights, right? And the idea they had values that you were being taught from a young age that you saw the justices in your bones. Do you have a story about like one of those values living, like a particularly memorable moment that like really sat with you and like, yeah, this is why I know justice is in my family's bones. It's a story. It's a place of healing, maybe some reckoning. I remember being 15 years old and a group of friends and I, all young black men, were at a local McDonald's and it was in Clifton, which is right by the University of Cincinnati. And in this particular McDonald's, we're six black boys having a good time, eating our little food, and we got louder than we probably should have been. And there's a police officer who comes over to our table. It's a white police officer. I don't remember what he said, but I know we're we're being chastised. And we just all sit kind of silent. And I look at him and I say, we weren't even doing nothing. At which point he physically pulls me from my seat and places my chest on the table and puts his full weight and like his his elbow down on my back. And my friends were impacted as much as I was impacted because I felt helpless. And we left together and nobody said a word. We just walked, but it was clear there was something different from that moment. And so it's been difficult having trust in like local police for, for me. Where I live now, I'm, I'm in Ohio, I'm in a different part of Ohio. I've known police officers who were working in schools where I was a principal, who I have personal relationships with. And to me, they seem trustworthy. But if I don't have a personal relationship, I still get pretty worked up when it comes to any type of interaction with police, I would say as as most black men do. But I think justice being in my bones is one of those things of, we can experience our individual situations while recognizing they're connected to a larger reality. And so that provides a bit of angst, frustration and compassion when it comes to the movements. That was 15. College, I was, involved in um, Black United Students, and I am very, very light-complected. So for all the listeners, uh, I'm about as light as you can get. It's my it's my, my nice round lips that help people realize that I'm African-American. <laughs> and the, the experience in college was one where I decided to, to go as deep into 
my heritage as I possibly could have gone. And I would have used black toothpaste if it if it existed at that point. Right. And a message shirts, speaking at rallies, you name it. I was trying to, quote unquote, awaken all of my brothers and my sisters. I was involved in the executive board. I was the, the president of Black United Students. I had a minor in Pan-African Studies. I was doing everything that I could to try and validate my Blackness, to understand my Blackness, knowing that my grandmother was chocolate and had that silver afro, but I was about the lightest thing walking. I was trying to get as close to her as I possibly could in my own values and the way I carried myself. So those are a couple pieces. Man, there's something about your story. I don't know any Black men that I've built relationships with that haven't had some kind of encounter like that with the police. Like none, like none. Let's be clear. Isn't that something that is so common? Yeah. And when I sit in my own skin as a Asian American, Filipino American male, generally speaking, most, not all, but most of my interactions with the police, myself, my family have been either neutral or positive, right? And so it's just one of those things that I think it sounds like you've been able to build, even with the the difficult trauma that you experienced, you said this like a level of like empathy of understanding what might've been happening because of the system of which we live in, in the criminal justice system and the way that, you know, if we quote KRS-One, right? In the sound of the police, you know, overseer, 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 off of, 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 of office. You got it. Right? You know, um, you know, certainly putting what you and I value on the table, right? And that doesn't mean that all police officers are bad, but there's a there's a deep, deep system of, you understand the history of where police departments come from. I mean, but do people know these things, right? I think becomes the big question. Do they understand like, oh, it's, these are not just, you know, folks who, who are just in a bad system, but there's there, there's a couple centuries of like how this has been built around some of the original nature of what police were doing. Well, absolutely. I mean, and, and Ron, you know, policing black bodies is something that has been very present in the educational system. Mm. And so to think about what it looked, felt, and sounded like to, to, to experience that, and then to learn pedagogically that some of the best ways to quote unquote manage is to over-police black and brown bodies. And so I am very right. proud of a lot of the great things that teams that I've been a part of have been able to accomplish when it comes to education. But I can also admit that I've got shame for some of the over-policing of black and brown bodies that I modeled, I embraced, and because it led to results, champion, you know? So right. here I am as a, as a young black man who knows what it feels like to have an overreaction right, who then began to herald overreaction and overcompensation and the assumption of guilt, the presumption of guilt, yes. right? And that, that was, that was a, a major part of portions of my life. I mean, there are people who haven't spoken to me in, in years, and I would imagine what they remember from me includes some elements of me saying, well, you need to you need to over-police these, these black and brown bodies. I would have used different terminology then, but mm -hmm. it can certainly be clearly understood. That's what I was doing. Yeah. It shows you how much the system and our cultures are designed to reward that behavior, right? It is so Absolutely. baked in 
to the origin story of our country, right? Your second story, Keenan, had me really intrigued because I think when I understand from the many black folks that have been able to want to share their story with me, um, this idea that surprise, surprise, black is not a skin color, right? It is not the way that you look per se, right? And we know like every identity is just like what you said carried residence because in college, I dealt with similar things in my Filipino-ness. Like, what does a Filipino look like? It's like, oh, I don't have the kind of stereotypical, maybe almond-shaped, rounder eyes that you might see in, like, Philippine media, Filipino-American media. And Mm -hmm. dare I say, and this made me feel horrible about, like, my identity, like, are you Filipino? You sure? Look at your eyes, right? Or I had stuff said to me, oh, you walk or talk like you're black, and I was like, wait, what? And I, I always knew, like, when you said justice is in your bones, I always yeah. knew those things were wrong. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't have the language to, um, you know, confront it in a way that might have shown some grace. I mean, Brooklyn Ron, <laughs> <laughs> he confronted it all right. And there were folks who were shamed pretty quickly in the moment because I was like, you not, I ain't no punk. Well, you got that, you got that vinegar. You got that good, good, uh, right. Right in my kidneys, man. I was just spray that out, man. But I'm curious, like that those moments in college, like what did you start understanding around your blackness? Because there's something around understanding identity in college that for me is fascinating because of like so not only what I went through, but like my friends and still hang, you know, going to college campuses like NYU and seeing yes. how students develop in fact, like identity development, especially around race culture. This, it just fascinates me. So it was, it was fascinating. It was fascinating because I was looking for something, but I didn't know what it was until I found it. So prior to college, every summer was a, every summer was spent working at a local YMCA, working with kids and working around a lot of white people. And this um, this YMCA, you know, we're outside, we're down behind the YMCA and it's a really large camp. So you go down these stairs, there's a creek. It's beautiful. We're taking the kids through all these experiences. But my brother, myself and probably a handful of other folks were people of color. The rest of the counselors were white. But if you're outside, even if you're going down into the woods, we're up in the pool every day. So folks are getting tan. So you know what it's like when when a white person raises up their arm and they put it next to you and say, look, I'm darker than you. Uh, and that was the that was a reality. Like every single summer, somebody white was talking about how how much darker their skin was than mine. So in mm-hmm. college, when I'm immersed in this department of Pan-African studies and I'm learning about cultural mores and norms that have come from the continent, but are, have been present in my actual family, I'm saying, yeah, I thought so. This is what this is about, right? And so I was intrigued and I just became a a voracious reader. Uh, Mm. I remember really just trying to glean as much as I could from my my black professors and knowing that my faith was still my faith. It was a faith that my grandmother had. It was a faith that my mother had. And and I could hold Mm. those two and they'd not be in opposition. That was a wonderful learning. You know, yeah. uh, because mm-hmm. oftentimes growing up in the black church, you know, intentionally or not intentionally, you know, messages of leave that stuff alone, leave that black stuff alone 
are like they make their way. They make their way to into messages and even some of the Christian organizations that I, I learned about and participated in college. There was still tension there. It was like, are you mm-hmm. with us? Or are you with them? And it's like, I'm with all y'all. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like you're asked to choose because there's only this I there's this idea that you gotta pick a lane. If you are of this identity, you can't have other multiplicities of identities that inform who you sit with and who you rock with, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. My mm-hmm. wife and I have been together forever. We met in college. We Dope. we were actually in this in this Bible study and she mm-hmm. was giving me a hard time. She'll tell you the story different, but she's not here. So this is my version. <laughs> she might future future Ronderings podcast uh, guest. Come on now. She's amazing. <laughs> she's absolutely amazing. All right. But she'll tell you that uh, my brother and I were were saying that we could be at the club and still love the Lord. And folks were not having it. No, they was not having it. They looked there like, what's wrong with these boys? They they don't know what they're talking about. And so here's 20 plus years later. And we're having a conversation a month ago. And I said, you know, I love you, but my opinion has not changed. Right? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, the same thing oh, I said man. all those years ago, like I still believe. I said, but y'all gave me kind of a hard time. So I wasn't really going to articulate it. I said, so one, I think that there's a beauty in being in a relationship with, with folks who are different. I've got an older cousin who told me when I was a teenager, if folks are in a relationship and they're exactly the same, then, then somebody's not needed. And so I think mm. it's beneficial to be in relationships that are different, different yes. values, different belief systems, et cetera, because I think we have an opportunity to learn and grow across lines of difference. And I think that's one of the blessings of, of life, right? Now, what I believe should be what I believe, okay? What I believe should be what I believe. But that doesn't mean that there's not room to learn about a different perspective, to learn about a different method, a, a different belief, okay? So I ain't changed all that much. Yeah, it sounds like the uh, the root of who you are is clear, has been clear since get. And yet, just like all of us, right, you, you started to add branches and other things. So we'll fast forward in time to today and how we met, right? And so I don't, our audience should know that um, I met the good Keenan through my, my missus and my personal sage of my book, Leverage the People, Love and Care About You Personally, Professionally, Build the Circle of Champions. That's a long phrase. I, I don't just like saying leverage, right? <laughs> <laughs> like saying it, it's, 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 like, it's spiritual. It's, it, it gives me some like, ah, right? You got a certain level of chutzpah. <laughs> yep. Yep. So um, I met you, Keenan, through my brilliant, amazing wife, Shanita. And I'd be remiss not to put what work you do at Rethink, especially being able to build relationships across the line of difference and the DEI work that y'all do. So talk a little bit about the work you do there, but also how that foundation you know, absolutely, absolutely. You know, deepening and, and understanding your blackness in college, you know, um, the black church, the civil rights, social justice from your grandmother, your mother. Like, how did that, how does it get wound up all into this work you do, we think? Absolutely. Great question. And and uh shout out to my sister Shan Rap. You know, that's uh that's a little tag on the on my text messages. Is this, <laughs> this is Rap. That is. So <laughs> I love it. She's she is amazing. Um, we actually facilitated together a few years ago and became mm. quick friends. Um, yeah. And at that point, we just stayed in contact. Rethink is an organization that is near and dear to my heart. 
the way that I am involved in Rethink is Kate Gerson, CEO, friend slash mentor, reached out about some work that she thought I would be good for. Mm. And we together provided some support around equity-driven leadership. So if you're in a school and you're looking to make sure that equity is impactful, is intentional, can lead to the, the humans at work being treated as human and good outcomes for kids, then you would want to engage in this um, equity-driven leadership. And we did it and we kept doing it and there kept being a, a greater demand. And some of that support translated into me calling Shanita and saying, hey, Shanita, this is good work. Uh, I remember working with you before and there are systems who are looking for, for more. And I'd love for you, if you've got capacity, to come along and join us in some of this facilitation. And that can look like coaching school leaders, coaching executives in schools. It can look like professional learning. And that professional learning that your wife participated in was with um, school leaders and it was with um, school teachers. We, we supported not only the concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but what does it actually translate to when it comes to making a decision every single day? Every single day instructionally, what does that look like? Every single day from a principal seat, what does that look like? Every single day as the, the folks at the district level making those decisions and putting those parameters, those guidelines and, and pointing to true north, what does that look, feel and sound like? And so we were blessed to be able to work with Shanita, to be able to work with so many other folks as the, the work grew and continued to grow. I'm very proud to say that uh, we've supported folks throughout the U.S. We've recently uh, started supporting folks internationally, which is pretty exciting. There is a- I heard, that's dope, man. We're in pilot mode right now for a pretty impressive app that's gonna help you rethink the way that you work across lines of difference. And so this is a, a great tool. So we've been doing the work and Shanita knows this example what I described Rethink as is like the Wu-Tang Clan. <laughs> so wait, wait, time out. Before you, who who are you in, in the clan? Come on. If Keenan Rethink Wu-Tang, which, who are you? Honestly, I would love to be uh, Inspector Deck, you know? <laughs> the the Rebel INS is like so slept on, but it's like the creeper who just will just drop out the blue mm. and, and just smack you with some crazy lyrics. So... So it's Kate Theriza? So, I mean, lightweight, right? Because Kate put put the team together. Yeah. So if you know anything about the Wu-Tang Clan, you know that every single member on their own is like a formidable MC. Like they can hold it down, right? Yeah, man. But when they come together, like the clan ain't nothing to have with. And so the so rethink is come on, man. practitioners, right, who have been doing some pretty amazing things on their own. Mm. But when they get together, the clan ain't nothing to eff with. And it allows for us to show up in a way where we can be very beneficial to those inside and outside of education systems. My role as co-founder is the K-12 lead. So most of my time is spent in the education side of the house. But what we've realized that the things that we've gotten good at as educators are the same things that are beneficial in the, the corporate sector when it comes yep. to working across lines of difference, allowing people to feel seen, having methods 
to methods and structures in place where you're intentional about what it takes to bring folks into a room, to close out a room, to show genuine care, active belonging, and, and even instill professional agency. So those things translate. But we've had the opportunity to have Method Man and RZA and Jizza and Tony Stark, Raekwon, you know, you got ODB. Like, we've got a team that's pretty amazing. Y'all need to do on your IG stories, each of you need to, like, identify with someone in the clan and be like, yo, this is how I'm this. That's dope. I, I-, I will listen to it over and over again. I don't care. It's not even about, like, likes, comments, shares. It would be just there's something about that resonance because of our mutual love of hip-hop and yeah. watching particularly the um, Hulu Showtime, you know, Indeed. three seasons on Boo. You know, they're an American story, an American saga, you know, just to, Absolutely. You know, to bring Woo into this conversation, man, it just gets me gets me really hyped. Well, I'm getting excited now because we've got <laughs> now now I've got a vision of some some content. That feels great. You and I riff back and forth about like good content because at the end of it all, if you don't brand, look, let's be clear, zoom out. There's a lot of competition in the DI space. There's so many people that say they do it. And I think if I bring Kate being a dear friend and mentor to me was a guest on this podcast some episodes ago. And some of that I want to bring to the to the forefront that I think emotionally feels like how I think about justice, right, on an emotional level is everyone deserves to be healed and to be loved. Absolutely. Is that not justice? So one of our- You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I feel like that gets me emotional because you think about the way that our system is built is built to punish. It is built to demonize. It's not about healing. It is not about this place of like healing and love. Why is it not? So that's where the faith meets the feet feet piece from my grandmother, right? Because it's like, Mm -hmm. if if the greatest of these is love, you know, of all of the things that we've been taught, all of the commands, everything's supposed to be followed. The greatest of these is love. What does that actually look like? Right. So is it uh, is it patient? Is it kind? Is it gentle? Um, is it not self-seeking? Like what what are the attributes? And those are really the attributes that everybody deserves at work. Do you have to live the same life as me in order to deserve those things? No. Do we yeah. have to do, do we have to grow up in the same neighborhood the same way in order for you to deserve peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and 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 for me to exercise self-control no right so Mm -hmm. that's where the walk matches up for me and that's why i'm trying to make granny proud is like look there is Mm -hmm. there is a certain reason i'm on this planet you're going to hear it in the music you're going to hear it in our conversations you're going to hear it in facilitation but the reality is what i believe it takes is grounded in the faith that I have, and that faith says love looks a certain way. And so how yeah. do we unpack love so that folks can feel a sense of belonging, no matter what their background is at work? And if you rethink work, it actually creates something that can work across generations. They can work across belief systems. It can work across the way that we love. Like it's, it's so many differences that can be abridged in the workforce when we actually treat one another with this foundation that some folks call belonging, yeah. but it all can it, it can all be traced to some sacred text. Yeah, the, this has been going on for millennia, if not eras, right? When I think about something that is 
in tapping into the ancestral wisdom and intuition that I feel just about every moment of my waking life is ain't love the answer, right? Isn't this feeling of folks, we as humans wanting to be connected in community and that shows up a certain way, right? It doesn't mean that people don't fight. It doesn't mean that you don't feel the other range of emotions. All of these things all exist at the same time. Yet at the end of it all, when you realize when you feel, look, I've felt these other emotions over the last 48 years, right? Of fear and anger and shame and embarrassment. Those are pathways for me to understand that it all comes back to love. Wait, wait, it all comes back to love, right? And so there's this, for me, everyone needs some kind of healing process because I think no matter what you've gone through in life, you feel things, right? That's to be human, right? And so you bring these things into the workplace. You cannot compartmentalize. People who think they compartmentalize work and life, it doesn't exist. Certainly in the age of COVID with folks like working in these like hybrid environments, remote environments, right? Oh, wait, I'm bringing work into my home. Oh, wait, I don't, oh God. And for some people that don't feel good. For some people like me, it feels amazing because I like to blend, right? And then turn it off. But that gives me more autonomy, flexibility to do two and a half hours of working out four days a week on my powerlifting comp, right? I, in most jobs, please. That's why I decided to go the entrepreneurial route, but that's but this, this podcast is not about me. <laughs> it is not about me, right? So, Ron, I think there's also, I think there's so many layers to to love because there's what love looked like in my first, my first decade, second, second decade, third decade, yeah. fourth decade. I'm not sure what it's going to look like in the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth decade. I know that I plan to be about 120 years old. I plan Ooh. to be, be 120 years old. I'm going to still be loving, but mm. I'm going to also, I've got this running joke that I'm going to be like the really old guy in the cypher, you know? So there's going to be some young bucks that are rapping and I'm going to tap them on the shoulder and be like, hey, what y'all doing? Can I see that? And I'll grab the mic, even if it's just an invisible mic. And then I'm just going to dominate like the entire cypher. So between now yeah. and 120, in this time, there's a reality that love isn't always the touchy-feely stuff. It's not always like the kumbaya, like we don't have problems. But part of love is critical repentance and it's restoration. So uh, if I love somebody, I've got to be willing to own my stuff. I've got to be able to yeah. turn in the other direction from that stuff. And then I've got to ask and model restoration. So things might be off from what they were before because of something that I did that may have impacted that relationship. I can't look at you and be like, but you love me, right? I can't look at you like that. I've got to be like, here's my crap. Here's what I did. And this is not something I want to do anymore. I'm I'm committing to turning and and walking in a different direction, meaning my behavior is going to be the opposite of what it was that caused this problem. Mm. And Mm. once I've done that, now we can have a conversation about what needs to be true about our relationship. Like, do we have to kick one another off the island? Or because of this, (laughs) this critical repentance, this naming and owning of my stuff, can we actually stay on the island together? Like, I'm not going to force myself to stay on the island so that you decide you have to swim away. Yeah. But I don't want you to force me off the island either. You know, so I'm out here trying to survive in the water. So love is not always the easy stuff, but love is the real stuff that includes that critical repentance and that restoration. I love that language. So 
to bring Shanita back into this conversation, one of our loves is watching reality TV. When I mean we watch for a lot of reality TV, it make a lot of people's head spins. We watch a lot of them. <laughs> so I've been watching 90 Day Fiance, The Last Resort, and this idea of like critical repentance and restoration with these couples from the 90 Day Fiance like ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. And coming on, it's like, this is the last resort. So it's like, you know, nice resort. And they've got couples therapy, all these things, these activities. And what always fascinates me is that sometimes you never know what moment or set of moments or what's said will start to move towards that critical repentance and restoration. There were couples that I was like, no way, yo, they done. And some of those like, oh, I thought they were good and then they were done, right? You just, it, it fascinates me, right? Because I think there's something very inevitable, like as we as humans are trying to like figure out our ish, right? Everyone has to make a decision about whether, as you said, like literally this is, you know, what they're gonna do like in the last episode next week is, do we stay married or not, right? Absolutely. Do we stay on the island or not, right? And there's something really, I don't know, like for me, when I think about the the emotions of that, it's um, it's deep stuff because, you know, at the end of it all, you want people to feel like they're being healed and loved and you're rooting for these folks yet. You also want to root for them like, y'all probably shouldn't be together right now. This is not working. Like you, the, the woman who's been cheated on over and over and over and over again, you're done. Right. And the person who wants to be healed needs to go on their own journey without you. Or maybe with you, but in a different context, right? Maybe it's just, I've always had like, what's the path? Because at the end of it all, we all have our baggage. We all have our stuff. And like, I would hope that, you know, um, when people make decisions that I, I have the humility and grace to understand, I don't know what's going to end up after that, but I'm going to go where I need to go to. Just like folks, will who decided not to be in my life anymore. I think that's right? absolutely I think that's absolutely right. This idea that there's there is grace, right? Your decision is your decision and it can be owned. We are not advocates for abuse. That is not anything to, to, to advocate mm-hmm. for. We are we are advocates for like adult to adult communication. And adult to adult communication, when it happens in the workplace, looks like being gentle and direct. So I'd like to have a conversation about what happened yesterday. Yesterday, when this occurred, here's what the impact was. I believe in what we're trying to do here, but when these things happen, it causes the opposite impact. And so what I want us to get clear on is what needs to be true about how we interact. Yes. That's an adult to adult conversation. Mm. That can lead to restoration. That can actually yes. lead to repentance before restoration. The male-dominated workspaces, oftentimes it's easier for a man to do that than it is for yes. a woman to do that, which means we got to unpack some stuff in the in the environment, right? We've yeah. got to create the conditions so that folks are able to voice that. It's easier for a white woman to do that than a woman of color to do that. Yes, yes. It's easier for certain women of color to do it than a black woman to do it because of all of these different layers. So we come into organizations and help create the culture so that there is a safety in adult to adult conversations. Mm. We don't have to worry about, quote unquote, speaking truth to power. And this is a Patrick Dobar quote and being afraid that the power going to get cut off. 
<laughs> ain't, ain't that right? Yeah. Ooh. So, so those boy, are oh boy. those are the elements that we try to be intentional about when you're creating these inclusive workplaces. We believe in genuine care. We believe in active belonging, and we believe in professional agency. And our research is grounded on those ideas because that's what it takes for these environments to become inclusive. So we help folks unpack those. But love is more than a word. Love is more than uh, a potluck with a a, a variety of, you know, folks' favorite dishes from their their home of origin. It's more than um, matching polos when you go, you know, across town. It's more than all of that sort of stuff. And if those things are sprinkled in, I ain't mad at it. But you got to do some hard work. And that hard work is just like anything else. Once it's practiced, it becomes normal. We've got to be able to leverage history. We've got to be able to leverage our own journey as a tool for other folks learning. We've got to be able to figure out what's going on in our own heart because there's some there's some racist stuff that still pisses me off. And how do I how do I have an adult to adult conversation about that? when I might want to kick you off the island. Right. So all of those, all of those dynamics have to be considered, man. Um, there is a, there's something I asked your wife to do for me because we're going to keep, we're going to keep Shan rapping here. All right. I said, Hey, Shan rap July 30th. You know, I'm reintroducing myself musically. So I want you to listen to this project and I want you to, to write a review. And so she wrote a review and it was glowing. I so appreciate it. She she earns, you know, 100 Keenan points. I don't know what to redeem. <laughs> Sounds like you got Keenan bucks, man. I love it. Yeah, you, you got, got, got your, new, your own game, your own hustle. And like, it's going to blow up. It's going to be something. But I'll tell you what, her review and other folks reviews have been really positive because one of the things that is mm-hmm. true is that the lessons, the values, the learnings, they make them they, they have to overflow somehow. Right. Mm-hmm. And so. Since I was a teenager, I've been rapping. I mean, from like really, really bad, you know, like mm. freestyle session, eighth period in high school and in ninth grade. And I'm I'm making some of the most basic rhymes. Me and my buddy, he's like, I don't have money. I'm really not funny. I mean, it was really horrible. That's what was in my mind. You know, that's the way I still rap. It's embarrassing with my love of hip hop. You put me in a cipher, it, it's, it's like I, I freeze because some of it's like I haven't practiced enough, right, to get that mindset for it. But to hear that, like, that's where you started out, like, how does that evolved? How has that evolved? Brother, that's how that's how it all starts. I, I kept doing it throughout high school until I was good enough to actually go into like a cypher at a track meet and like some girls started thinking I was cute and talented and I got some phone numbers. I, I knew I'd get uh, at that point. Uh, about kicking game. No. <laughs> it, that was it. That was that was always the motivation. And then yeah. there was the um there was college and college was great, had a rap group and we would What's travel. Rap group? So it was it was it was friends, man. It was friends. It was a blessing. So we had my buddy Taz who was the DJ uh, my okay. buddy Jabari, who was coming in from D.C., uh, MC, he was far better than me. We had uh, our, our friend Clint, who was like making the making the beats for a little okay. bit of time. We had my man Chris, who was, you know, like pretty nice on the beatbox. So all mm. of those things were were nice and we're like learning and, and trying things out. There was a time where I was I was in Italy with my brother and I was doing some of some of the songs that the group and I had, had come up with. 
but we did it in Italy. Um, the whole group wasn't over there. I was over there and my brother was doing the, he was doing the, the crowd response in Italian and it was a blast, right? And folks are oh, having a good old time. But there was also a time where I stopped because I thought that it was in conflict with being a person of faith. And it wasn't like I was saying crazy stuff. So I uh, set it down for a good amount of time. And then when I picked it up years later, I only picked it up when I realized that they should work hand in hand. Yeah. So let me, what was the tension between that moment for what you thought of how your faith should manifest and your yeah. love of, of rapping? So at this particular point in time, this was when folks had CDs. And so if you really love God, the popular thing to do was to get rid of all of your CDs that were like hip hop CDs. And you gotta know, like back then, you know, we had like the books you would travel with in, in cars. It was like 80 CDs and we had all of the cases. It, all of the good stuff, you know I'm mean? Like you gotta get rid of Nas, you gotta get rid of the things, you, I, you name it. So Ooh. there was so much stuff. So that was like our external commitment to God. Like, all right, I love God so much, I'm gonna get rid of this stuff, right? And so it was years, it was years where I just didn't, in my heart of hearts, quite know how to, how the two should work. So it was bad, because I'm like, my brother and I used to be driving to church and we were like bumping Biggie on the way to church. And then one, one day he, he switched it out for Hezekiah Walker. And I'm like, what are you doing? And, and so, so we had That's like- two polar opposites, man. <laughs> we, had, we had like Hezekiah Walker and Fred Hammond that we were like just living yeah. on. They were like our only two gospel CDs for like the longest time. Mm. And I don't think it was a bad time in life, but it was just a time of trying to figure out like who I was, what do I believe, you know, and what is a commitment? You know, if I'm going to make a commitment to to my wife, then she's going to be the only one I, I, you know, I concentrate on. So at this stage in my life, it was like if I'm really making a commitment to, to God, he's going to be the only one I'm concentrating on. So I'm not mad at it. But I did feel like there was an element, an element of me that was missing. And so I like was like, all right, this is in me. This is supposed to come out. I'm pretty doggone good at it. So started performing again, shows all this good, great stuff. And then it, it became more of a hobby as opposed to something I was truly pursuing. But I'm also very intentional about not wasting people's time and not putting out something that's low quality. So anything I put out, is going to be good. It's going to be good. And so this project that came out in July is called Seriously. And there's some real themes in it. Not only is it lyrical, not only is it musical and the production is phenomenal and the drums are bang, but like there's real content. There's a song called Alienate Us. And that's about so many of us having to deal with like the loss of black life consistently and how it's just the same old song. And, and, and we don't want to keep singing that song. Um, there's a song called Inconsistent, and Inconsistent has a has a Dionne Warwick sample, um, and Ooh. it's dealing with it's dealing with like love and what we say about love versus what we actually do when it comes to love. So, do I love kids? Do I love adults? Or do I just love the idea of somebody being born? So that one is like, mm. are we really pro life? Are we pro choice? Because if I if I believe in life, I should believe in life like the whole time, right? So like. So that means when, when somebody you start poking is, holes in people's inconsistencies of their values and that manifests, folks can get really upset. So all of those things are in us. Right. And so I'm pretty much posing questions. I'm just like, are we consistent? Are we not consistent? 
and let's think about this. Because two blocks away here in Akron, yeah. Jalen Walker had 96 bullets shot at him. 96. I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. And it was like a broken taillight scenario. Right. Right. So, and then when you look at the comments that folks are making, like, well, he should have done this different. He should have done that different. He should have done this different. Do we really value life or do we just value seeing people born? Because life extends, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. if life matters, then life matters, period. So that's another conversation. But I say all that to say, whatever it is that I'm sharing out in the world makes its way into and through music. So seriously, is a project I'm really proud of because of some of the themes that are in there, the sounds that are in there. And it's just a culmination of several things that I've observed or participated in within the world and my belief systems. What impact do you want seriously to have? Where do you see that album that you put out going in your wildest dreams? If you were to like, Ron, what I'm telling you right now, here it goes. This is what I want out of it. What is it? So it's two things. I think with any music that I that I put out, like I want it to be on somebody's constant loop, you know? Like I want it to be on somebody's constant loop and I want it to inform the way that they're thinking. Common informed the way that I was thinking, good, bad, and, and ugly. So much so that this line mm. that he said almost made it so I didn't get my wife. He said, real hair and real eyes get real guys. And the first time I saw her, she had on some color contacts and I asked her why you got them things in your eyes. I didn't have... The, the silver tongue that I needed to have at that mm. point. I'm so mm-hmm. glad that grace covered me in my foolishness. I would hope yeah. that the things that I'm putting out there would have constant rotation and somebody would pick up some of the good elements and that would impact them. Be it seriously or be it this next project that'll be ready in 2024 that is it's crazy how good it is. That one is called Influence. That one actually has a, a picture of my grandmother and me on it. Uh, and I'm I'm tiny wow. and I'm I'm like kissing her face and it's just amazing. That album is crazy. So I want seriously to tee people up. If you like seriously, you're gonna love influence. So I wanted to tee, to tee people up. I love this boy, Keenan. Man, I wish we had another two hours and go deeper into your love of hip hop and musicology. But um Deep. You read my mind. I was going to go towards, you know, asking about your love of hip hop and, you know, your your musical career. Right. But let me ask this, because this is the Ronderings podcast. Right. And so folks who are just going to want to know they they heard your incredible story. It's a child of Ohio story of your grandmom and your mom, the work you do, rethink. Right. Your journey of, 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 of blackness. What's the Rondering? the value, the lesson you want to share with the audience today? So something I would like folks to ronder about (laughs) (laughs) is this idea that everybody samples. Everybody samples. Mm. And so in hip hop, we'll take a James Brown drum loop. We'll take an Aerosmith guitar riff. We'll take a Macy Gray vocal. We'll chop it up. We'll put all those things together and we'll create our own little bass line. And then it creates brand new songs, brand new music. And so when it comes to the work that we're doing and we're putting out in the world, it's just like sampling. So with Rethink, DEI is not about the newest, the, the, the newest, the latest, the greatest idea. It's about things that have been in existence from indigenous cultures forever. And it's about sampling a piece of this and sampling a piece of that and putting a little bit of this on it and adding your own little baseline so that each organization 
can experience the song in a new state that they need to experience it while honoring where it came from. Yeah, when man. it comes to anything that we see out there, not related to DEI, it could be related to relationships. It could be related to belief systems. It could be related to how you interact with folks. Everybody samples. And so my charge is to be willing to acknowledge when you need to take a little bit of this and take a little bit of that and take a little bit of that and create your own song so that you can create something that's beneficial, but you're not doing it on your own strength, your own expertise, but acknowledge where you get it from. I got mine from my granny. I got mine from the black church. I got mine from golden era hip hop. Now there's a lot of other stuff sprinkled in there. Mm. That's what I'm sampling. What are you sampling? Yeah, that's so powerful, Keenan, because I think some of it is, you know, when I thought about the creation of this podcast, right, that bringing people's stories into explicit communication and voice is a way for us to get the way that we sample, right? Because there's all kinds of things that I learned as a kid born in East Flatbush, raised in South Ozone Park, Queens, right? That I'm constantly like all these phrases and things like, I'll give a like really funny example. So I remember in high school, I had someone approach me because I've always said y'all, right? Indeed. People might assume y'all is Southern, Southern black, right? But Southern, right? And I, as a kid who grew up in New York City my entire life and just moved across the water to Jersey City, it was one of those words that I picked up because I hated saying you all. Mm -hmm. There are people that like, it, I, I don't know why, Bob, I just, I don't know why I don't like you all. It just like, takes, it, it takes yeah, up too much space. I'm, I, and I move fast. Tell people this all the time. Like, there's New Yorkers and there's me. I move faster than most New Yorkers, in fact. So I'm like, I'm trying to always figure out stuff like, get straight to the point, right? So I remember, you know, this particular woman in high school, this uh, female student in high school is like, y'all, are you from the South? Why are you saying that? I was like, because I picked it up in eighth grade being around folks and it just sounded better to you. I like, I, you know, and for me, it's just like, we obviously all sample, right? But I think, and I know that story, but sometimes also when people don't know your story or they make assumptions about your story to be clear, right? They may not know that that comes from something that has explicit acknowledgement of the source, right? And so I Absolutely. often go back to when I think about the I work is it's so integral in every space I've ever been in that's worth its salt is providing spaces for people to feel comfortable, courageous safe to share their story because everyone's got one. I mean, it's like, you know, I think about one of the, you know, foundational books I read when I was at New Leaders, right? You know, Courageous Conversations About Race. I mean, that book been around 50 years. Absolutely. Everyone I know, Kate Solvet has read it because it's on books. <laughs> it's on mine. She needed to have I mean, probably multiple copies, right? But this idea is starting with like self, right? Um, and acknowledging your sources and being able to say, we all take a little bit from everybody. So, that's brilliant, man. I want to end off and make sure that, Keenan, you have the opportunity to promote what's going on. You've done some of it organically, but I want to make sure people could hear it again. What do you want to let people know about in your career, in your Absolutely. life to put on? Thank you to everybody who has already checked out the Rethink podcast and has been keeping up with us. If you are in an organization and you recognize that DEI is a desire, but has not been a, a healthy manifestation, please, please 
let us know at Rethink because we want to get in there and we want to support you. My hip hop lovers, if you have like that premier guru, I don't know, Pete Rock type of type of vibe that you're, you're looking for, we do not profess to be on that level, but we are certainly inspired and influenced to make things of that that quality. So please check out Keenan Bishop and Jonesy. The latest project is called Seriously. If you listen to it in Apple Music, I get a little bit more for the streams than any other platform. So you can listen to it wherever, but I would prefer Apple Music. Uh, okay. Seamless okay. plug there. And I want you all to keep an eye out because January of 2024, you should see influence and influence is going to be pretty phenomenal. Outside of that, support Rethink, support Keenan Bishop and Jonesy, support Rondering, and read, read, read. All right? Mm. Appreciate y'all. Keenan, I got to say, man, I feel I can see you on a stage, man, doing your thing. If that's how you want to manifest, I could see that, you know, it could be a stage like, you know, one of these Ed conferences, right? But it could also be, you know, stage at home in Ohio. You know what I'm saying? One of the local hip hop, you know, joints, right? You know, so. I had a, a, a call from a friend. We're going to an alumni gathering for the Cambiar Catalyst Fellowship. Ah, beautiful. And, and so Cambiar are my people. I love them. And so the song Tribe, um, Chris heard, Chris Meyer heard. And he was like, hey, man, can you perform that at the um, Catalyst Alumni Reunion? So I'm I'm, I'm going dust, to dust off, make sure I still got my stage presence. And um, so that'll be really cool. That's coming up in the next couple of weeks. Yo, man, like if they record that or something, you'd be willing, I would love to see you like do your thing live, man. That'd be dope. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely, brother. Yeah. Man, Ron, I appreciate all that you add to to the universe, brother, and all to my universe. Thank you, man, for the call. Thank you for the time. No doubt. Keenan, Ronderings fam. What what more can I say in the words of Jay, right? Um, Keenan Bishop, check out the beautiful work that Rethink is doing, his his hip hop career, because he's already big, but I'm telling you, more to come. So Ronderings fam, we out and we always coming. Peace. Always coming. Peace. Keenan Bishop ending the podcast with everybody samples. If you understand what that means, especially if you're a hip hop fan, that means that there's no such thing as something that you're taking that's truly, truly original. We are in our life, in our work, our sampling. We're taking a little bit of this, a little bit of that, whether it's from our family, it's from something you listen to, a mentor, a champion, something you went to college for, and we piece things together. And what Keenan says is powerful is acknowledge where you're getting that, those sources from. How are you sampling? Who are you sampling from? Because it is bringing to light the wisdom and the light that we are recreating and remixing. So I leave y'all with that, Ronderings fam. Check us out, ronderingspodcastmatter.com. Peace. <laughs>